0: Hello Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host Jesse Weiler and we have another great episode for you. I know that we just started this new mini-series on post-conciliar documents, but I forgot that we had recorded this other episode before that that I really want to get out. And basically this episode is about art. What is art? How do we know if it's good or bad? And why is it so hard to tell the difference between good art and bad art? So without further ado, episode 11 of season 4 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy I just sent I just sent Karen a meme of this uh, person who said I I dropped my glasses at an art museum and I when I went to go pick them up somebody thought thought it was an art exhibit so they were taking pictures of it and like staring ah. staring at it and trying to think what it was.
1: <laughs> this just shows you how far we've come from any kind of real understanding of what art is, rather than just a happenstance interaction with a, an inanimate object. So mm. that's what I want to talk about today. You know I'm I'm here at Benedict. And Chris was here this weekend we yes. with his son, Dominic, and his nephew, Benedict, and is also his son, James, and his other son, Lars, who is my godson. Very great Lars, Very sweet. We, we made two uh, jack-o'-lanterns together. Art. Now on, my, on my porch. We made art out of pumpkins. Who knew? And uh, we got to use a power drill. Lars now loves power drills because we were drilling holes in the pumpkins with the power drill, and he just loved it. So That's he's d- like a That does sound
0: fun. He's a little t-
1: testosterone-driven little boy already. He's going to be a man someday. Give me my power drill. But he hopefully he won't talk like that. But anyway, so here I am and here Chris was. We went to Willie's downtown and had some had a steak. It was steak. Good. Was and that one st- of
0: the recommended restaurants from the the guy at the Abbey?
1: Yeah, well, he he gave me the list of every single restaurant that was in Atchison. Apparently, in one of the podcasts, I said there are no restaurants here, so he gave me a list of all of them—not um, <laughs> some of them, but all of them—and that one I knew it was about. good. Anyway, Dude, he, he was right. I was being, you know, I was making generalizations.
0: You were being yourself. I was, yes, <laughs> sassy
1: and generalizing, but. Once Chris left, I had to start thinking, oh, I have a job here, yeah, what do I have to do? I've been teaching. Yeah, what do you do? (laughs) What exactly do you do here? Well, I am the executive director of the Center for Beauty and Culture. I've heard that title
0: a few times.
1: And so, you know, I had like five minutes to move and to think about this. So lately I've been thinking about it. Now, what we're gonna talk about now is not, this is what the center will be, but some of the ideas that are swirling around in my head about um, art and beauty and culture as I consider what the center will actually be. Because I think a lot of people are kind of unequipped to deal with art in our world. You know, somebody likes this, somebody likes that. You got all these intelligentsia types at art museums and universities telling you this is art and it d- looks ridiculous. D- yes, dinner, Chris. Do
2: you remember uh, at dinner I told you the thing that I, I dislike the most about uh, the liturgical field?
1: Uh, I don't remember. Were you talking to me at that dinner? I forget.
2: <laughs> oh, oh you, you have a
0: mute button. <laughs>
1: He's coughing out the insult there. Uh, so, sorry.
0: Well, that's fine. I'll All tell right. you a quick joke right now. Dennis. I'm back. I'm uh, back. Oh, can I hear Justin's joke on here? I just okay. want to know if your job description just says <laughs> other duties as assigned.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it, no, it doesn't, but it just says executive director of the center and teaching fine. so many classes. So nice. it's very, very broad. So I have to figure out what it's going to be. I said the, say, the most
2: difficult thing to do in my job are questions that have to do with liturgical art and architecture. Oh, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah they're impossible. They're so mm-hmm. difficult to try wow. to articulate to get people to see. like griff. you, they are. So, yeah. Well, they are. So I just, I am, I am one of the many who can vouch for that statement that you made that people just find it very difficult and I speak about it and convince people of it. Great.
1: Well, Everybody likes to operate out of the area of personal preference when it comes to most things, right? But then no one would say I like it my personal preference is that the brain surgeon does not correct the right nerve in the right place. Or my personal preference is that physics does not actually make this building stand up, right? They think there are these objective norms in every other area of life, especially, the, you know, the sciences and engineering, things like that. Yet somehow when it comes to beauty, it's kind of like, well, in my completely uninformed, uh, never-taken-a-class-on-art-history opinion, I know what I like, right? And so that is kind of the, uh, the situation that we're in in a lot of ways. But then there are also these highly educated people who never heard of a sacrament or they don't know the difference between high culture or low culture or they argue there is no difference between high culture and low culture. And so you have the whole art world, which is still gets a certain amount of attention. Right. We have art exhibits. We have art galleries. We have all kinds of pictures on the Internet and all, all sorts of things. We, we have art Garfunkel. Right? We have Simon and Art Garfunkel. And what do we do with all this? And so one of the things I've been thinking about is, what is the actual issue that we have in the art world right now? How do we hold... Uh, together a common vision for art and beauty that's not limiting it to anybody's personal preference at the same time comes out of the Catholic faith and can become not uh, too narrow, but not so broad that it has no uh, Grounding anywhere. So this is a pretty big thing that I have to figure out So I've come to a couple of little conclusions here. Ooh, I like this. Yeah, at least philosophically so one of them is the culture still values artistic expression, and yet we have this intense relativism. So people, oh, you did art? Oh, that's great. Let me see it. And then they feel like paralyzed when they see some ridiculous thing on a canvas in the, in the art gallery, and they don't, they're afraid to say, oh, I don't know about that. So I've been telling students, if your intuition tells you it's a scam, it probably is. Okay, so everybody out there... If you look at some ridiculous piece of art and it strikes you as ridiculous, trust your instincts. Now, don't go crazy, you know, without any careful asking of the right questions and everything. But pretty much, if it looks ridiculous, it probably is. There is no secret Gnostic information out there that nobody's telling you. It's just the world having devolved into this kind of understanding of art that has uh, no basis. So, Dennis. it's not beyond standards of evaluation, interpretation. Yes, yes, Chris. Uh,
2: I just have you ever seen this book by an author named Paul Johnson, who I think is a Catholic. I think he's an English author. He's uh, it's, the book is called Modern Times. Another one called Intellectuals. They're really pretty good books. You ever heard of this guy, Paul Johnson?
1: I haven't. I'll say more. Okay. Tell me.
2: So I just started reading this book the other night, Modern Times. And he says, the modern period began, uh, now I'm going to sound stupid here, but with Einstein. So he has these theories of uh, relativity and they wanted to verify these um, with this solar eclipse that happens sometime like, what was it? In the must have been in the 20s. Um, and they had to go to where, there, where this eclipse was going to be visible somewhere. I don't know. must have been in the, uh, in the Atlantic. So they're going to see this eclipse. And they were trying to measure the refraction or the bending of light or something like this to verify... Um, would you say, uh, you know, with, with actual uh, empirical data, this theory that he had. And as soon as they were able to verify that, he says it kind of shattered this uh, this view that we have been living with that there is such a thing as objectivity, that even time and space are all relative. And he says at the same time, you get it in a literature and art and psychology where it's like the the objective rug has just been pulled out from, from right beneath you and everything is uh, Gnosticism and everything is reducible to subjectivity. What
0: was relative about the, them testing it? Uh, what's relevant about my comment?
2: No, uh, no, no. no. no so so what's relative? Einstein had a theory about uh, relativity, okay, but he, he didn't want to publish it until there was actual empirical data. And so when you would see this eclipse, I think this is how it works, is you Man, this is really outside of my... Uh, now you know how here. I feel every time we do this podcast. <laughs> so, so they're somehow measuring the, the refraction or the bending of the light around this, uh, this solar eclipse to, to, to see that the light has bent and that it used to be, I think, that you know that, that light and space and things like this were all kind of like an objective. You could count on it being unchangeable and now you come to find out it's relative wow that's that's not helpful is it (laughs) well it it does it it is in a way because
1: what happens is people start hearing about scientific theories and maybe they understand them maybe they don't but then all of a sudden they're like oh well if everything's relative then i'm gonna operate out you know on this as space and time changes by you know different philosophers people start rethinking buildings you know heidegger has these theories about space that are different than kant that are different from the classical understanding and so Some philosopher says something that architects, oh, yeah, we're going to do this instead of that. And actually, these ideas do have consequences. But I think what we've seen in the last couple of centuries is this devolution or devolving of the sacramental worldview into the, I don't know what you say, the subjective worldview or the subjective expressive worldview. And so I think we have to deal with the idea that the arts are still part of the Catholic faith because they come from somewhere and you know the faith is bound up in images it's not just preaching it's not just moral life but it's how do you make an image of yourself how do you make your life an inspirational image for somebody else and then of course you know the actual tangible arts that we're used to like art and architecture or, or music or poetry and so one of the great problems in our time is that the faith for whatever reason is not being found compelling by the generation that succeeds the one that game before right so your grandma deeply religious your mom so so next one done me religious (laughs) right and then occasionally there is this sort of odd inversion of that but what happened what happened that the third generation suddenly says oh that's compelling to me again actually maybe I'll ask you Jesse what how did you have this conversion
0: I guess I, I guess I don't know like so like specifically but I do know that there's been two uh, crucial moments in my life where I had like a reversion, I guess I would say, and one of them was in college uh, and getting to know focused missionaries and understanding my relationship with Christ in that way through them. And another was through this uh, Catholic camp that I worked for uh, in Colorado called Camp Voitiwa and just seeing all these young people really on fire uh, for God and realizing like, oh my gosh, this is, this is something that's bigger than me, and it's something I really want to be a part of and dedicate the rest of my life to.
1: Right. And somehow, somebody or many people in those situations made that compelling. It's like, oh, yeah, that looks like a good. That is presented to me as something good. Well, you can imagine if they locked you in a room with a, a bitter, crusty old someone who pointed fingers at you and yelled at you for being a sinner all the time and told you, you know, unless you become a Christian, you're going to hell. Well, you know, there's truth in it, but it's not really very compelling. And so the question is, how does culture... Which is kind of the enfleshed version of all these activities in, in the Christian understanding of things. How does that make itself believable? For the next generation. This is what Cardinal Ratzinger called the social agent or the cultural agent, that they take the ideals of the time and the inherited tradition into themselves. They're not just, they don't just hold it in a book and say, read this, but they actually live it. They explain it. They, you know, sit you down on their knee. They make it look believable and um, compelling. And so the question is, how come culture is not doing that anymore? We still have artists. We still have architects. We still have musicians. And somewhere along the line, we say, okay, well we had that mass with music and a building and vestments. But you see, if the music is not so great, if the building is uninspiring, if the vestments are not good, if the the art of rhetoric or the art of persuasion is not used in the homily, then it's just kind of oh um, that's boring. I don't get anything out of that. No nothing has changed in my life. Why would I come back to this? So here's the challenge. You know, how do we how do we see the arts and beauty in general in a larger scheme of God's plan for salvation. And I don't think most artists even consider that question. It's like, oh, I'm gonna express my feelings, I'm gonna make a political statement, I've mastered a certain craft, I replicated a picture of you know, a bowl of roses or something. But how many artists actually stop and say, where does art come from? Like, How come we can do art at all? And so this is one of the things I'm thinking about and one of my core principles here, I think that the center will have, is that art has a foundation rooted in God's own plan self-revelation can you think about about how that is how did god primarily reveal himself
2: through Through himself through through christ through Through christ Christ, right
1: so christ is an image of the father in other words the invisible god right and then you can speak of adam and eve as being sort of images uh, in their own way too because they're created in the image of god so when god creates He makes something that reveals who he is. And that's, it's in the nature of God to be creative and to make the invisible visible. So it starts with the world and you can think about the sea and the stars and the birds and all the stuff in Genesis. Those are all tangible things that somehow reveal the mind of God. I think I mentioned this before that Father Nicanor Austriaco theorizes that God made dinosaurs just so we could know that God could make dinosaurs. I love that. I love that idea that it's not good for humans and dinosaurs to be on the earth at the same time. So they had to go extinct before we we got around but how would we know god's capacities if we never found the bones of dinosaurs Which is
2: i love that awesome. idea we've got a in the Adoramus bulletin in november there's a really good piece by roland millar who's a liturgical institute alum yeah and he's talking about pope benedict and virgil michael people we talk about a lot about what's necessary the problem that we we face that you're speaking about dennis is this crisis of sacramentality is that when all things are reduced to a form of materialism, then the world cease the birds and the the planets and the dinosaurs or whatever, they cease to reveal the unseen attributes of uh, the hidden God and they just become, that's it, that's the end of the road. There's, right. They're and not revealing anything. Someone,
1: someone has to be there to tell you, let me tell you more about this bird you know i think i sent you jesse a video about hummingbirds once and you're like "Whoa, hummingbirds are the coolest yeah then i went i immediately
0: went home and watched this hummingbird video like at 10 p.m on a friday night
1: because it was so fascinating right you think like how many times per second their (laughs) wings move and how fast they move and they only weigh a few ounces
0: migration patterns they're flying like hundreds of miles to migrate And they weigh like the the weight of a couple of paper
1: clips. It's just an unbelievable thing. Anyway, you
0: can hear about that on Dennis and and I's uh, bird watching podcast. It's on a different channel. (laughs) That's not a
1: bad idea. I know. Anyhow, but someone could just say scientists and they give you the data or someone really makes you, makes it come alive to you. There's a tour guide at um, Chartres named Malcolm Miller, who's quite famous for just opening up the Chartres Cathedral to people, the visitors. He gives tours and people come away saying, whoa, I never knew all this. And this is what a good teacher does. They say, okay, you're looking at this thing in front of you. In some ways, it's kind of opaque to anything beyond what your sense experience gives you, but we have to make it transparent to something uh, beyond that. And so what Part of what I was thinking of in the arts is that we're kind of stuck in the middle between ontology and teleology. Ooh, I've always thought that. My favorite ologies. right out of my, ologies, right? right so, out my I, mouth. But you, yeah. you can interpret. Can do you, do you interpret that for me? What, what, stuck between ontology and teleology when it relates
2: to art? You, you pick one, Jesse, and I'll take the other. Well, teleology. T- li-
0: uh, t- gosh. we got it. Yeah. Teleology. <laughs> teleology is, so the telos is what something is, deci- the end of something.
1: Right. The purpose final goal or what they call the final
0: right. end. Or and something. then
2: Chris is gonna tell you about ontology. <laughs> That's the the, the the study of the being of the thing, the the nature, the essence, the substance, the that which makes the thing to be what it is.
1: Right. So most people have some sense of ontology of their art. I'm going to make a pleasant picture for someone's living room. I'm going to make a political statement. I'm going to show the world a hidden facet of something in creation that I've observed that they haven't observed. So there's usually some sense of a goal in art. But then the, the idea is how do you raise this to something higher? If, this is, if art is part of God's plan, that he allowed human beings to share in his own creative power, in other words, participate in the incarnational activity of God, which is to make God who is invisible, knowable, to share in that by use of matter, then that's a whole new kind of teleological thinking. Like, What is the end of the incarnation? It's always the glorification of God and the sanctification of humanity. And so if that's the goal, and it's a thought nobody's thought of before, and I'm not just talking about art in churches, I'm talking about anything, right? Even if you show conflict or battle or a war scene or something, what you want people to know is to learn is something about their relationship with divinity, what's the highest purpose of life, how do you live nobly and justly and best. In other words, how do people come to know what true happiness is? And so art, in my mind, has to have that teleological goal, or it's just kind of looking at something and going, oh, huh. it's like hotel art, you know, There's nobody makes great political or religious statements in arts in hotel, it's just odd little squiggles or something that fills the wall. But it's not rooted in ontology either, right? If on, if ontologically art is the sharing of God's powers with his creatures who could see into the future of the glory and bring it back into our own time. Here you have ontology and teleology, and we're not really operating out of ontology or teleology very often as artists. We're solving functional problems, meeting the budget, expressing our emotions, coming up with some theory of based in Derrida or, you know, who knows what. Well, the, but
2: the, I yeah. mean, that's the problem. I mean, we talk about we as artists, uh, that's true, but even we as Catholic artists yeah. <laughs> seem to, I mean, if, if somebody should have this vision, not, not everybody will, but if anybody does, you would think it would be, you know, someone brought up with a Catholic worldview and the sacramental worldview, that, uh, that 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 acknowledges uh, ontology and essence and nature and that we're all designed for a particular end. There, there right. shouldn't be stretches of a Catholic imagination.
1: Right, I know. It's just, so, you know, human beings have an ontological foundation and a teleological You know, destiny, right? The Eucharist, a church building, a car, a flower, food, whatever it happens to be. And so we sort of hang around in this, oh, I'll just, you know, do what I find pleasant, whatever my emotions sort of lead me to do. And then you kind of, what I call, get stuck in the quicksand of the middle between ontology and teleology, and it just becomes subject to all kinds of whims of whatever people say art is so that's one of the first things i've been thinking about at the center for art and beauty what can it do to say okay art has a foundation rooted in god's own plan of self-revelation he makes the, the invisible visible and then he makes it even even his own glory visible it's a transfiguration uh, moment and so uh that's pretty important stuff uh to just even to start to think that way okay I'm not saying every artist in the world is going to buy this, but you know, at a place like Benedictine, your job is to contribute the Catholic vision to transforming culture in America, which is what I've been asked to do, which is kind of. Dennis, can you speak amazing. a little,
0: a little bit to the idea that even though you may know this, like philosophically, you may know these concepts that you were just expressing, that at a certain point, there's also this idea of like the ability to actually do that. From like a, from like a skilled position, because you, you, you may know that, but your skills may limit you in, in that direction. Can you speak a little bit about that? I sure can. Right.
1: This is a distinction between the image and the likeness. So the image being created in the image of God means that you share in God's powers. God has creative powers. He shares them with people to participate in that kind of creative power. However, it doesn't come automatically. It's like God gives you the power to play the piano, but you're not born as a genius with the piano or football or basketball or whatever. You know, if you want to be good at free throws under pressure when 25,000 fans are shaking their keys at you, you better have done your free throw practice, you know, like a thousand free throws a day or a month or whatever you would do. So that when the time comes, you are a free throw thrower. And so an artist has to master the skill, even if they know that what their job is to be revealer of God's own um, reality. If they don't have the mastering of the skill, then they can't, they can't do it. So you can have pious Catholics who do sort of crummy art, you know, or you can have accomplished artists who don't understand the ontological foundation. So the two have to go together. And once they do, that's when the real breakthroughs can happen. Uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar says that the true uh, uh, vision of the artist is when the artist's hand and the Holy Spirit act together, that the the Holy Spirit guides the artist's hands so the human mastery combines with this divine glorification to There's become this, a revelation.
2: You know, this line in the catechism about the Holy Spirit being the artisan of God's masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? That He's the principal artist and we're kind of the, the docile co-operator in this uh, project. Right, because the Holy Spirit is,
1: in many ways, the the revealer, right? That makes different languages knowable, for instance. It takes the unknowable and makes it knowable. And so if if the artist is really saying, hmm, I'm going to work hard at developing my craft, understanding that what I'm doing isn't so much about my own particular emotions, but what has God allowed me to know about him that he wants to use me to show to other people, right? So think about a preacher's job, right? wow. Preacher reads scripture, gets a great insight. Sunday comes along and they get to give a homily. I'm going to tell you what I think God wants you to know right now. And I can be the agent of that knowledge. Well, that's pretty clear ontology. We expect that people know that preaching has comes from somewhere and has a goal, right? To stir up the fervor of, of the faithful. Not always sure that artists, especially outside the Catholic Church, Um, know that. So just just to ponder that alone is a huge, huge refocusing of the nature of what the arts are about. And then you can start talking about beauty, right? If God is actually using his creatures to render the fullness and the truth of his reality, his ontological reality, then you start creeping into the idea of what beauty is. And we talk about beauty in several podcasts this season, but one of the things we didn't talk about so much was that the effects of beauty are joy and delight and a movement of the will toward the good. And it pierces the heart and opens people up to choosing to do things that they might not have thought they would do otherwise. And so beauty, which is this attractive revelation of the truth, is is part of how these things become compelling it's at the heart of making the, the faith uh compelling because if it's not beautiful who wants it right if it's not delicious who wants to eat it
2: yeah that's um uh, i don't remember where he said this but pope benedict maybe as cardinal rasker says what the the two most convincing things the greatest uh, apologetic in the world today is what uh, the church's art and her saints you remember that line
1: I, I mean, don't, but that's good,
2: right? What's well, yeah, a saint? A saint is a happy person and beautiful too. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to be like that. Sure. Yeah, well, why is Mother Teresa so beautiful? You know, because she's filled with, uh, uh, she's radiating the divine ontology through her, uh, through through herself, what, what she's doing. So she's beautiful, attractive, joyful, convincing, right. appealing. This is the basis
1: for all marketing, right? All advertising. You Boy, get some, I know it. You get some handsome dude or some beautiful woman, you know, holding up a bottle of whatever they're trying to sell. And it's like, ooh, if I have that, you know, hair tonic, I can look like <laughs> hair tonic. <laughs> Christy Brinkley. This shows my age, but uh, whoever it is. A hair tonic
0: remember... was something that was around in the <laughs> early 20s, so I, know, I
1: don't know. I know, I know. But so, the point is people try to wrap these things in attractiveness and compellingness. Now, when we're talking about the faith, we're talking about letting the truth of the faith shine through, and then it has its own compelling power. Hmm. All right. All right. So what does that mean for an artist, then? I know we're coming up. Uh,
0: we ran out of time. Here. Sorry, we can't answer that. next time. Tune in next time. <laughs> in next time. <laughs>
1: well, I will just bust right through your little jokes and say, John Paul II in his letter to artists says that artists have a vocation, an actual call and capacity that they can see beyond the, the ordinary things of the world to the image of perfection and their job, their job, their, in fact, their duty, their, the way they will be made happy. Like everybody who finds their vocation is to do that, to reach into the heavenly future, bring it back into our own time, and to render present to other people, the things that artists perceive that other people don't. And so we have art, which is sacramental, rooted in the mind of God, part of the plan of salvation for God, Culture is when all those things are embodied and presented to the next generation in a beautiful and delightful way. And without being rooted in the truth, it's ultimately going to be unconvincing, uncompelling. If the craft is not that good, unconvincing, uncompelling. If it's just about your own personal emotions that day, good for you, but that's your life, not mine. So what does an artist have to do? Reach into the, the broader transcendentals and render them present to others. And hopefully then someone will say... I recognize that as a good, and you know this, Chris, the movement of the will toward the good is a definition of what? Of beauty.
0: No. sanctification.
1: No. The movement of the will towards the good? Towards the good. Yeah. Love. Love. Yeah. There you go. So beauty, the effect of beauty is it moves the will toward the good. If you send these beautiful, you say, oh, that's good. And you want to go get it. Right? And so that means it's generating love in you. So imagine if the faith and all the attributes of it, the arts and what else? are involved with it are presented in a beautiful way what you're actually doing is moving the will of the other toward the good that you're trying to get them to believe in and so beauty is not just this overlay of you know sparkles and sprinkles or you know rich people paying for rich people stuff it's making the truth of the faith compelling and then the arts have a really important part in that So those are the deep thoughts that I'm thinking of, and I think this kind of thing will be the contribution of the Center for Beauty and Culture as it it gets developed here.
0: Well, good luck with that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) My job is to transform (laughs) culture in America. You go
1: do that. Okay, let me know how it
0: goes. (laughs) I'll do my best.
1: Did you find my uh, argument compelling just now? Of course. Well, I did, but
0: I...
2: I'm yeah, we're that already, already in, though. You're already yeah. in. All
1: right. Well, we'll see.
2: But I think, you know, I do think that people who might reject it, they can't escape their own ontology, even if they don't think they have a nature. And these things, I think, are uh, they're not far out. I think that they're, they're very human um, human arguments. So I think they're hard to escape from. You can deny them for a while, but they're you can't shake them.
1: Hey, can we offer a T-shirt, Jesse, to somebody who uh, writes up the uh, Constitution of the Center for Beauty and Culture for me, so I don't have to. Don't yeah, you have so. one,
2: one, a t-shirt already?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, no, if someone else does I it. already did that. No, Other I mean, duties are as assigned. <laughs> oh, okay, got it. No, no, no. This is actually a great thing to do, and it's fun to talk about. So, what about time for a new t-shirt? We should make a new Liturgy Guys t-shirt one of these days. Yeah, we, we can we have some, some fun uh, on this podcast, Jesse. Yeah, we have some con- contests. What contests can we offer to our people?
0: Let me think about that, and I'll get I'm back a, to you. The most beautiful listener.
1: Oh, oh, yeah. We could uh, have a beautiful Liturgy Guys listeners contest.
0: We could have a, you know how you were telling me they had like a Mr. Benedictine? We could yeah. have like a Mr. Liturgy Guy contest.
1: Oh, yeah. How would we do that? I don't know.
0: Maybe I'd <laughs> we'll have to submit like uh,
1: little YouTube videos of them. Maybe at the Caesar's Palace in Vegas, we could do that.
0: Yeah. We should okay. do that. Yeah. All right. Work on that. Oh, hey. Can I just put in my quick little reminder? Yeah. we haven't we haven't mentioned this yet, but um, we're going to be at the Focus Conference. That's in, right, all three Felix. of us. Yes, me too. So, yeah, even, I, even I, you, Chris. Yeah, even you. We decided to bring you this time.
2: <laughs> Last time we
0: did not. <laughs> so we need somebody to carry the boxes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And we need we need somebody to have a beard because neither of us have one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we're going to be at the Focus Conference. SLS uh, 2020 in Phoenix. So, if you want to come talk to us there, we're going to do a live podcast uh, at the conference. But you can come talk to us, ask us questions, uh, take pictures with just me, not the other guys. You know how it goes. You can but bring anyway,
1: pie crust if you like to.
0: Yeah, you should bring pie crust if they let you bring that in the convention center, which I don't know they will, but we'll see. But anyway, come see us at the conference. We'd love to see you. And uh, I think it's time to answer a liturgy question. That is right. Do it. <laughs> Time my, for a flat coke. My, I need a flat my coke. favorite is when I propose that we need to answer a question, and Chris is like, "Yep," or alright. <laughs> let's do it. Let's, let's do it. I suppose that's a thing we might gonna do right now. Anyway, huh? everybody I'll, I'll, I'll get, get your hair tonic ready for our liturgy questions.
2: <laughs> so why go to the liturgical institute? Well, if you want to serve the church, and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church. You won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition.
1: Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class?
0: Anyone? All right, this next question comes from Father Jim. Father Jim says, hello, Liturgy Guys. Hello, hello Father, Jim. Father Jim. And unlike uh, one of our other questioners, he did not assume that this was the morning or the afternoon, so thank you for not assuming. Uh, Father Jim says question for you. I am interested in learning more about the practice of bringing the Eucharist to people who are not very mobile and find it difficult to come forward during the communion procession. At my parish, two extraordinary ministers will usually go to the back of the church after communion is finished to bring both the host and chalice to those who did not come forward. Do you have any idea when this began? Was it present in some way before the reforms of the Second Vatican Council? Is it a good thing to do? That's a lot of questions, Jim. Oh, and man. he says, "Thanks for your podcast. Since my ordination in 2018, I've really grown in appreciation uh, for your work and the importance of a good, homo- a good Holy Liturgy. Keep up the good work in Christ." Father Jim, wow, How
2: nice is that? Yeah. Super Thanks, nice. Father, for saying yes to God's I call. I guess I Thanks forgive for you for answer,
0: asking like three questions.
2: Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. We don't know the answers mm-hmm. to all of them, anyway. I uh, here's here's my uh, shot at it. I don't know what the practice was before um, uh, before the council. I think he, here's some things that might inform uh, a responsible. Uh, I don't know. Uh, reply to that. I think on on the one hand, you know, the Eucharist is meant to transform and divinize people and the church's pastoral care does all she can, you know, while retaining her integrity to make that happen. Uh, your God uh, condescending to become one of us. And so I think, I think, you know, on Holy Thursday, there's this really cool rubric at the Mass of the Lord's Supper where it says, the priests entrust the sacrament. So this is like the birthday of the Eucharist, the Mass of the Lord's Supper, to bring to the homebound and the infirmed. And I think we're kind of doing that on a smaller scale when you take the Eucharist to the back of the church. So I I think it's a good thing i think um however if at all possible it, there's supposed to be a procession right life is a process is a procession of moving from a to b from fallen earth to to heaven and this kind of movement towards the sanctuary is not without meaning so i think um if people can do it they there's some things to be gained some grace to be gained some efficacy some fruitfulness to be gained for bringing people forward uh but again if they can't then then we should go to them what do you think of that dennis
1: sounds like a good idea to me i I never would have thought of maintain trying to maintain the integrity of the procession but if it's not possible then you don't deny people Eucharist. so it's a good balance and 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 merciful view chris
2: yeah well i don't think it's a neutral thing i think it's a uh, you know you, you scratch a surface and all these things in the liturgy you discover that there's i mean there's the wisdom of the ages very often beneath those so i don't know if what i've just said is that wisdom but i think that's yeah. that's a start to look Sometimes at it's not
1: regulated all you have to do is go
2: based on the principles that you have at hand and mm. you're very very good at that chris mm. thanks
0: all right, Father Jim, I hope that answers your question. And if yep. you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys or tweet Dennis at DMACC Super Taster tastes more than you do. Or send a handwritten letter to Chris at <laughs> crickets,
1: hashtag, don't bother me. <laughs>
0: crickets.
2: <laughs> All right, thank you, is that and that Is that hashtag like the pound sign? Is that the same thing?
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Oh, man. <laughs> You're a even older than I am. Now
0: that's a podcast.
1: The Liturgy Guys is brought to you by the Liturgical Institute at the University of St. Mary of the Lake, Adoremus, Society for the Renewal of the Sacred
2: Liturgy, and the Center for Beauty and Culture at Benedictine College.